0: And if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Last week, we looked at the amazing conversion of the people of Nineveh. Uh, God takes a rebellious prophet. He moves him out of the belly of a great fish. He recommissions him and he sends him with the same message of judgment and destruction to a same great city, to the same sinful, wicked, rebellious, violent, pagan people that he did before. And... In what is one of the most surprising, beautiful, wonderful demonstrations of God's mercy in the entire Bible, a city repents. A city of pagan, violent idolaters hears the warning of a single prophet from outside of their land, and they believe. Nineveh believes what God says. They believe that their sin has not gone unnoticed. They believe that the God who is warning them of their sin has the right and the ability and the authority to judge them for that sin, and they repent. And their repentance is characterized by remorse. Their hearts are broken. They take a posture of mourning over their sin because a right understanding of God leads to a right understanding of sin, and a right understanding of sin is a sorrowful thing. Sin is a heartbreaking, tragic, rebellious reality that ought to bring mourning but they don't remain there. They act. They change. They turn from their wicked ways. And it's this wonderful picture of what genuine repentance looks like. And every now and then we'll get the question uh, do you think it was real? We know what happens, and that Assyria ultimately goes and conquers the northern kingdom in 722. So Nineveh moves back into violence not a generation later, but do you think it was real? And I think we get our answer in Matthew 12:41, where Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The implication is that the people of Nineveh responded to the limited understanding that they had about God, and they responded with humble repentance, but Israel will not. Israel doesn't do it to the prophets, and ultimately, Israel won't even listen when the Son of God himself walks among them but here's the question what about you today's message is the unanswered question Jonah chapter 4 is a chapter of questions and the final word in the chapter rings out there with no answer because it is left to you to respond to how will you respond to the grace of God what do you believe about God what will you do with the offer of his grace and mercy If you're not there already, find your way to Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read just the first few verses to set the stage for where we're going, and then we'll jump in. Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "'O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster.'" Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, I pray that we would respond to the questions, that we wouldn't look for satisfaction in what Jonah did or didn't do, the people of Nineveh did or didn't do, but that we would see that you speak to us we ask along with the psalmist that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, show us your glory through the truth of your word. Lord, show us the horror and the tragedy of our sin through that same word. Convict us and by the power of your spirit bring us to a place of repentance and ultimately obedience. Lord, we pray that you wouldn't leave us with a head knowledge of who you are. But Lord, cause our hearts to change and that change to be so deep that our lives overflow in worship and obedience to you. And God, we need your help to do all of those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. This week during VBS, one of the sessions uh, was Ask a Pastor, and that's the kids have these chances to fill out question cards all throughout the week, and then at the end, during closing ceremonies, I take some time, and I answer some of those questions. And uh, as you can imagine, with an age range like that, there's quite the range of questions. Uh, They go everywhere from, uh, how did you meet your wife, to why do people like pizza, to if God is good, and if he can do everything, then why did he make Satan, or why do bad things happen? Quite quite the spread there but questions are critical questions are a vital part of how we learn and they're not just a part of how we learn they're how God has built his revelation into us God is a God who asks questions even from the very beginning think back to the garden of Eden. when Adam and Eve sin when they fall they recognize it and they hide themselves from God and the first words of God to Adam and Eve after the fall are what where are you and it wasn't because God didn't know where they were, it was because God used a question to drive home their understanding that sin separates, that sin separates man from God. We read from Job this morning, in Job 38, that resounding question, where were you? Job, where were you when I formed the heavens, when I filled the seas? Where were you when I named and numbered the stars? And of course, It's meant to highlight Job's finite, limited nature in this great contrast to God's omnipotence, his all-powerful, eternal scope. Jesus himself used questions when he was on earth. Why do you worry about what you will eat or what you will drink? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who do you say that I am? All of those questions meant to drive people toward an understanding of who he is and why he had come. And as we go through Jonah chapter 4, it's a chapter with some critical questions, the last of which is left unanswered. And as we move through chapter 4, we're going to do that in two parts today. First, we're going to look at Jonah's complaint, uh, the gripe that Jonah has against God and what he has done. And then as we move toward the end, we're going to watch God tenderly make his case for mercy, even to the heart of his rebellious prophet here. So as we open up chapter four, first of all, we're going to see is uh, in Jonah's complaint the charge that he makes against God's character. Look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The end result of chapter 3, the repentance of Nineveh, the fact that God does not destroy them, makes Jonah angry. And the literal translation of this is fascinating. It's a, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. Up to this point in the book, who's been described as evil? It's Nineveh. But now if you look at Jonah's response, he sees the actions of God as evil, and Jonah is even responding in a way that now makes him more characteristic of Nineveh than the repentant Ninevites. Jonah looks on the grace of God as something that makes him furious. Why? 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 I mean, shouldn't he have rejoiced? Shouldn't he have seen that change of heart and rejoice? Shouldn't he have seen God's tender mercy poured out and rejoice? Shouldn't he have seen this change of the people from violence to humility as something that was worth celebrating? He had seen the marvelous mercy of God on display, but Jonah had no desire for mercy. Jonah wanted justice. Jonah wanted no part in God's mercy at least not toward the pagan people, that he counted as his enemies. So what does Jonah do in his anger? Verse 2, it says, and he prayed to the Lord. I hope that you see what a critical part prayer plays in this book. In Jonah chapter 1, when the sailors are brought to the point of uh, throwing Jonah overboard to stop the storm, they pray, they cry out to God. Uh, They recognize that they are about to do something drastic, and they ask that God wouldn't hold Jonah's blood against them. In Jonah chapter 2, when Jonah is brought to the door of the death in the belly of the great fish, he prays. Jonah chapter 2, the whole chapter is a prayer of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3, when Nineveh is confronted with her sin, they are told to cry out to God to pray, and in their limited understanding, they don't know God's covenant name, they don't know his nature, they don't have the prophet the prophets and the background of the law, but they cry out to God for his mercy and they pray. And now in Jonah chapter 4, in his anger, in his rage, Jonah prays. And this is what he says: Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? What's Jonah saying? God, this is exactly what I knew would happen. Please notice that. Jonah is not angry because he is surprised by what God did. Jonah is angry because God did exactly what he thought he would do. And how often do we kind of move in that same kind of anger, although we wouldn't want to admit it? We could get the promotion at work, right? There's the job, there's the sale and to get it we know that we could get it all we would have to do is make a little compromise just fudge the numbers just a little bit Uh, just move things and massage things in this way that's maybe just a little bit over the line but after all it would get us that thing and if we get the job if we get the sale if we get the promotion then won't we be able to better provide for our family won't we be able to give more from the church and we go through that battle and we rationalize it in our mind but at the end of the day we come to the conclusion and we say no we're going to do what's right we're going to move in integrity and then what happens Somebody else is willing to fudge the numbers, and they do make the sale, they do get the promotion, they do get the job, and we say, see, God, I knew that would happen. Or maybe you could cheat on that test. And you know that if you get a better grade, you might get into a better college, you might get the scholarship and help your parents out, all you have to do is take the answer key that you know is out there online, and no one would ever know, but you know that you won't, you know that you shouldn't, so you don't. And you end up with the C, which tanks your GPA, and maybe you don't get the scholarship. And what do you say? See, God, I knew this would happen. I knew that if I do things like you want me to, they'll wind up exactly how I think, which is harder. And it leads to this pointed question, what's our motivation for doing the will of God? Why is it that you and I do what God commands us to do? Is it so that things go better for us? What's your motivation for working hard at your job? Is it to be a better provider? Is it to have a certain amount of things? Or is it to honor the Lord in your work? What's your motivation for parenting your children? Is it to raise good kids? Is it to raise functioning adults? Or is it to honor the Lord and to be found pleasing to Him? What's your motivation for preparing a sermon? Is it to fill the pews, to encourage people, or is it to honor the Lord with the gifts that he's entrusted to you? See, you can use it in every circumstance, in every situation, in every vocation. What is your motivation for doing what God has called you to do? Is it to please people or is it to please the Lord? See, in that moment, Jonah is furious. And he's furious because his goal was different than God's. his obedience wasn't driven by a desire to worship. His obedience in preaching the message was either to stay out of a fish or to see Nineveh come to ruin. But as often as we set our goals against the will of God, we're going to find nothing but frustration and bitterness and anger. That's why he said, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? And then he goes on and he says, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. By the way, God... Because I knew what you, were going to want, what you were going to do, I disobeyed. God, because you are who you are, I did what you made me do. Ooh, that's dangerous ground, isn't it? Lord, your character made me want to run away. By the way, that goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Why'd you eat out of the tree? The woman that you gave me, Well, the serpent, he tempted me. And now Jonah says, Lord, your character is what drove me away. That is dangerous ground to stand on. But Jonah's rebellion doesn't come out of ignorance. It comes out of a really good theological understanding. And so we move from Jonah's kind of charge against God to God's character. Because you ask, how does Jonah know? Jonah says, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah ran because he knew the grace and mercy of God. Jonah ran because he knew that God was kind and patient with sinful people. Jonah ran because he knew that God abounded in steadfast love. It's that word chesed used so often, especially in the Psalms, translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. And it's this word that is tough to come in a one-to-one translation because it means a steadfast love abounding in love a covenant-keeping always faithful kind of love that god pours out on his people and jonah knew that god could take that same steadfast covenant-keeping love and if he so chose he could pour it out on the people of nineveh and he hated that fact and so he says i knew you were slow to anger I knew you abounded in steadfast love. I knew you were one who would relent from disaster. And Jonah hoped for justice. He's going to sit and he's going to wait for destruction to come. And remember, if destruction does come, God is still just. Even if the people are sorry, God and his justice could destroy Nineveh. They were wicked. They had done what was wrong. The right consequence for their sin and would have been eliminating them. But Jonah knows. Jonah knows. He knows that God is able to turn and to offer mercy instead of judgment, but how does Jonah know that? Well, for one thing, Jonah has lived among a people who have experienced God's mercy. Remember, Israel is wicked, and they have been for a long, long time. And yet God is patient with them, and they still exist. More than that, even at the time that Jonah writes, we've talked about this, they are living at a period of relative peace and significant prosperity. The boundaries, the the borders of the nation have been expanded to a time that they haven't been since Solomon. The people of Israel appear to be thriving, even though spiritually they are continually rebellious. Jonah lives among a people who have seen God's mercy who are experiencing God's grace. But even more than that, Jonah takes this and he quotes almost exactly from the book of Exodus. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God to see his glory. Moses says, God, show me what you are like. And God says, no one can bear the fullness of my glory. You you as a temporary fallen human being could not bear the full weight of my glory, but I'll show you my glory, I'll hide you. And as I pass by, you can see kind of the backside of my glory, And then in Exodus 34, verse 6, this is what we read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God reveals himself to be a God of mercy and grace, a God who is slow to anger, a God who is quick to forgive iniquity and transgression, but he is also holy. And God will by no means ignore sin. He will not pardon the guilty. So how do those things fit together? How can God be a God who is quick to forgive, abounding in compassion and mercy, but a God who does not clear the guilty. Well, I wanted to answer that in part now and then more fully as we close. But let's ask the question this way Why does God pardon Nineveh? What does he see? Yes, it was part of his will. Yes, his design from the beginning was to show his grace and mercy. But what does God see in Nineveh that prompts his pardon, at least from our human perspective? It's their repentance. Where there is humility, where there is contrition and sorrow over sin, where there is a turning away from sin, God proves that although it's not demanded of him, he is willing to forgive. He is quick to forgive. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in this mercy and steadfast love that he pours out on penitent, broken, humble people. But where there's no turn, where there's no repentance, where there's no change, God is holy. And as a holy God, he must deal with sin. If God were to ignore sin, he could no longer be called good. And so we have a God who is quick to forgive those who approach him in humility and repentance and a God of perfect justice who will fully and finally deal with all sin. And so Jonah is filled with anger, not because he's surprised, but because he knows. His argument isn't driven by theological ignorance. It's actually driven by theological precision, which is a scary thing. And God is going to challenge that sinful attitude. God doesn't leave his prophet alone in this. Look at verse 3. Jonah says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Notice how easily and how much more quickly Jonah moves back toward death rather than obedience. In chapter 1, he would rather die than turn the boat around and move toward Nineveh. And now uh, in chapter 2, when he's faced with the reality of death, he cries out for his life. But in chapter 4, As soon as God's saving work is evident, as soon as it becomes clear that God is going to turn and relent from the destruction that he had promised, Jonah goes right back to this kind of defiant stream of self-pity and says, I would rather die. I would rather die than see this particular outcome. And so God asks a question. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Once again, get your pens or your highlighters out and underline and mark that, as the amazing grace of God. What should happen to Jonah? Either a return engagement with the digestive tract of a great fish, or he should get exactly what he asked for, shouldn't he? He's in open rebellion and defiance toward God, but God is kind and merciful. He is slow to anger. And in the face of his prophets, theologically driven temper tantrum. He doesn't respond with destruction, but the question that simply says, Jonah, are you right? Jonah, stop for a moment and consider whether or not you are right to be angry. Jonah, you and I are looking at the same situation a city of hundreds of thousands that have been moved from death into life. And Jonah, I'm pleased with the result. Are you right to be angry with it? Jonah, are you right? wish for wrath where i have chosen to show patience jonah are you right to ask for death where i have just promised life and maybe we ought to ask the same question the next time we're angry with god god how could you do this god how could you allow this god how could this be your plan uh god i know your power lord i know your sovereignty i know your wisdom i know all the theological boxes that i've got checked off in my head But Lord, if it were me, boy, I would have done things a little different. How patient of God to allow us time to reflect on the question, are we right? Matt, in your infinite wisdom, are you right to say that you would do things different than I would? And it's like that passage from Job that we read when we start the service. Although we have no right to question God, Every time that we do, he is gracious. He kneels and answers us. He shows us what he is like through his word, through his people, through our circumstances. He reminds us and he corrects us, but he comforts us. And now that we've seen Jonah's fury at God's design for Nineveh, we're going to close by getting God's perspective. And the closing of Jonah 4 isn't just a historical narrative, although it is a historical narrative about what happened. The closing of Jonah 4 is God's case. It's the Lord's case for his justice and mercy. It's the demonstration of God's heart toward his creation. And it's going to stand in stark contrast to the attitudes and the actions of Jonah. And the first thing that we see in this closing portion of the book is another example of God's sovereign and gracious provision. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now we don't know exactly what motivated Jonah to stay around, we know that he knew that God was pardoning Nineveh, and that's what enraged him in the first place. Uh, maybe he thought that his kind of pouty temper tantrum would change God's mind. Uh, maybe he thought that Nineveh would slide quickly back toward violence and rebellion, and that God would kind of take up that consuming anger that he had in a in a rapid fashion there. Uh, but for whatever reason, he goes out to the east of the city, and he does the best that he can to construct himself a booth or a temporary shelter. Whatever dried leaves, grasses, boughs were around there, he makes for himself something that would have been temporary and certainly not sufficient as we're going to see but would have been at least better than the direct exposure to the sun now what's the problem with that the problem with that of course is that God did not tell him to go to the east of the city and wait to see what would happen God said go to Nineveh and preach Jonah could have stayed with the people He would have found shade. He would have found shelter. More than that, I have to think that he would have found a thriving ministry among a people who were heartbroken over their sin and desperate to see what this God was like. And if not that, he could have gone home and rejoiced at what God had done and waited for his next assignment. But instead, he sits there, and he sits by himself, and he hopes for destruction. And he shelters himself. He does his best to make the best of his situation. But look what God does. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. What do we see? The sovereignty and the grace of God once again. The same sovereignty that called Jonah, the same God that appointed the storm, the same sovereignty that appointed the fish, now appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah. Jonah. God is absolutely in control over every part of his creation, but look at why he does it. He calls for the plant, he says, so that it would be a shade over Jonah, over his head, so that it would save him from his discomfort. In other words, Jonah's own attempts to save himself from the heat were insufficient, and God has to provide what Jonah couldn't in his grace and mercy. And I've got to think that if I'm God, watching my rebellious prophet strain together this feeble little shelter where I can still see the sun kind of streaming through and him still sweating and thinking, well, this is better than nothing, isn't it? I've got to think that if I'm God, I respond one of two ways. Uh, the first one would be laughter, probably, and the second one would be to kind of send the lightning, I think. But what does God do to his rebellious prophet He is slow to anger, and he extends mercy that meets a physical need. He deals kindly with him. He provides for him. He shows him grace. And Jonah, it says, is exceedingly glad. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. If you look through the book of Jonah, this is the first time that Jonah is happy. Do you understand that through four chapters, this is the first time that Jonah is glad about anything? He wasn't glad that the word of the Lord came to him. He wasn't glad of the assignment. He wasn't glad for the storm. He wasn't glad for the fish. He wasn't glad for being spit back up on the land. He wasn't glad for the renewed assignment. He wasn't glad for the preaching. He wasn't glad for the repentance. He wasn't glad for God's staying of his destructive hand. Jonah is delighted with his own comfort. That is critical to understanding what is going to happen next because God is going to move his prophet into a time of discomfort and pain. He's going to move from provision into pain. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. Once again, the sovereignty of God. He appoints the prophet, the storm, the fish, the plant, and now God appoints a worm, and it goes on. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. God appoints the worm, and now God appoints the wind, and the plant withers, and it goes from bad to worse. And now not only is there no shade, but now there's a scorching east wind. Again, we get the Santa Anas. Those are nothing compared to this kind of east wind. So dry, so hot that it sucks the moisture out of the air, out of your skin. It's almost unbearable from what I'm told. And Jonah grows faint. And Jonah comes back to a familiar response. Jonah asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Once again, Jonah says it's better for him to die than to live. From Jonah's perspective, the situation is too hard. This is unfair, this is not right, and it would be better for him not to be around at all. Now let's ask the question really quick. Uh, Did God have the right to do what he did to the plant? Yeah, he did. Why? Because quite frankly, it's God's plant. And it's God's worm. And it's God's wind. And it's God's prophet. And he has the absolute authority to do whatever he will with whatever part of his creation that he wants. More than that, did Jonah deserve the shade? He did not. He is sitting there waiting for destruction that he knows won't come. He has just challenged the goodness and the character of God. He is living again in open and active rebellion. He has no claim to God's mercy You would think that he would respond maybe now with some amount of humility, but he doesn't. He responds in anger and defiance. God, it's better just to kill me. And once again, God asks him a question. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Very similar to his question before, are you right to be angry? But now it's more specific, not just are you right to be angry, but Jonah, do you have any right to be angry over the plant? That's so specific and so pointed and it should have been so useful because Jonah should have stopped for a moment and considered, uh, do I actually have any right to be angry about the plant? He, He should have seen how far he's come. He should have seen how completely unacceptable his attitudes and his actions are. And once again, please see that this is God's grace. It would not have been kind of God to leave Jonah in his own homemade shelter. It would not have been an ultimate kindness of God for him to leave Jonah in the shade. To leave Jonah in his anger and his defiance and his rebellion... To leave a child wallowing in their sin is not kindness on your parenting part and it's not kindness on the part of God toward his children. It is the goodness and the kindness of God that moves his people into trouble and difficulty and even heartache if that is what it will take so that they see him clearly for who he is. It is a kindness of God when he brings us through difficult waters, even the valley of the shadow of death, If that is what it will take for us to turn our eyes to him but jonah doesn't get it what does jonah say yes i do well to be angry angry enough to die jonah doubles down on his claim and god is going to take that picture then And he's going to give the point, the lesson that Jonah needs. This is the point of the shade. This is the point of the worm. This is the point of the wind. But more than that, this is the lesson that you and I need to get from this. Look at what he says in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, you had pity on a plant. A plant that you didn't work for. A plant that you didn't cultivate, that you didn't plant, that you didn't tend, that you didn't water, that you didn't show any measure of care for, that you had nothing to do with. Jonah, you're showing pity on a plant that rises in the morning and withers in the evening. And then comes the most powerful sentence in the whole book. An astounding statement that displays the grace and the mercy of God poured out on his creation. Look what God says. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah, you pity a plant, temporary, withering, fading. Jonah, should I not pity people? People that I did create. People that I did give life and breath to. People whose lives are temporary, yes, but whose souls will one day face eternity. Jonah, you pity a meager part of creation. Should I not pity men and women made in my image? Jonah, I showed you mercy, kindness, steadfast love poured out on you even when you didn't deserve it. Would you withhold that same mercy to this great city? A city, by the way, in which there are 120,000 that don't know their right from their left is most likely a way to refer to children. People who are so young, some of you were older than others when you figured out what way was your right and your left. Joni, you pity a plant in its innocence. Could you not even pity children? If if my wrath could be reserved for the adults, would you not even pity the children that would come to destruction? And if not the children, the cattle who had no part in Nineveh's aggression and violence? Jonah, would you not even pity that part of my creation? By the way, a remarkable statement for how God cares for all of his creation, not simply humanity, that God opens his hand and feeds all of his creation. And again, that wonderful reverse argument that if God cares for the birds of the field and the cattle in the hills, then doesn't he care much more for his people? Jonah, would you rejoice over the destruction of children? That's a pointed question. Jonah, do you not see the measure of my compassion and grace, not only for Israel, but poured out on all mankind? And that's it. And we want there to be more. But that's the unanswered question. We want the answer. We want to know what Jonah did. We want to know that he got it. We want to know that Jonah goes home chastened but changed. We want to know that the whole story kind of wraps up on a positive note and that it has a happy ending on all fronts. But God, in His sovereign grace, ended the book with a question that's unanswered. Here's something fascinating there are only two books in the Bible that end with a question Jonah and Nahum. Uh, We'll come to Nahum in a little bit. And guess who Nahum's prophecy is toward? Nineveh. Very interesting. But what's the point? The point is that the question's not just for Jonah. The question is for the reader. The question is for us. For you. What's your answer to the mercy of God? What's your answer to his sovereign grace? What are you going to do with the sovereign grace of God? Do you understand the God that Jonah has been pointing to? Do you understand that God is merciful, that he is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, and at the very same time that he is just and will not leave the guilty unpunished. But let's answer that question. How is that possible? How can God be forgiving and just? How can God be holy and merciful? And the answer is in the one that Jonah pointed to. While Jonah would spend his days and nights in the belly of a fish, we know that Jesus Christ would spend Three days and nights in the grave. How can God be gracious and merciful and holy and just in Jesus Christ? The greater than Jonah is the answer. Jesus Christ, God, very God, holy, worshipped, adored from angels and all of creation from eternity past, took on flesh and walked among us lived a perfect life, sinless, holy, and completely obedient, every thought, word, and action pleasing to the Father, and yet he would go to the cross. He would be beaten. He would be broken. He would be bruised. He would be spit on. He would be mocked. He would be put to death, not for his own sin, but for ours, and God would pour out his righteous wrath against sin on the perfect son, and God is just as sin kills As the Savior bears the separation that we deserved, but God being rich in mercy makes us alive in Christ. And that he died the death that was ours and he pours his life, his righteousness out on us. That is how God can be both just and the justifier, as Paul says, of those who believe. That God being rich in mercy while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the sovereign grace of God that Jonah points to. That is the question that you must have an answer for. What will you do with the grace of God? Like Nineveh, will you fall on your knees in repentance and cry out to him for the salvation that only he can provide? Or like Jonah, will you simply wait for justice to come? The justice that would demand your own soul for your failure. Three things for us to think about as we leave this great book first of all what makes us happy or maybe the flip side of that what makes us angry it's a pretty loaded question if we're honest because we have lots of good justifiable reasons for both of those i'm happy when i get the promotion i'm happy when i get the grade happy when i get the girl happy when people act like i think they should act Uh, But, of course, the problem with those things is that the reverse all too often makes us unhappy, makes us angry. When we don't get the promotion, when we don't get the job, when people are unreasonable, or even the serious things that aren't just petty, when the diagnosis isn't what we hoped for, when the relationship doesn't get put back together, when the Facebook post is nothing but lies and slander. You, You see... If those things are where we find our hope, our identity, our joy, then our joy is always going to be temporary and dependent on the circumstance around us. And the hard thing is, I think, that even our well-intentioned Christian friends sometimes encourage us down that path. We go through difficulty and real difficulty, and so often there's the, that's okay, your anger is understandable. I understand why you responded that way it's okay rather than i understand every reason why you responded that way but you need to confess it and repent and change and here's why here's the remarkable truth of god our joy isn't based on circumstances which mean our joy isn't limited by our circumstances and, and neither is the other fruits of the spirit peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness Self-control, the beautiful promise of being one of God's people is that those things are not contingent on what's going on around you or even inside you. Those things are a result of the Holy Spirit that God has placed in you. Jonah was angry and joyful over all the wrong things. Jonah was miserable because he set his priorities against what God did. And as often as you and I choose to set our priorities against those things that God has said should not be our priorities, we're going to find nothing but frustration and bitterness like Jonah did. What makes us happy? Secondly, what's our motivation? Jonah prayed when God put him at the gates of death. Jonah obeyed when there was clearly no other alternative. And Jonah preached, but his heart definitely wasn't in the message that he was giving. So, what's our motivation for obeying God? Why are you here? I hope it's more than the burgers, although that's not the worst reason. Why are you here? Why do you come? Why do you worship? Why do we sing? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Why do we do anything that we do? Why do we parent the way that we parent? Why do we work the way that we work? To make the boss happy, to make the kids happy, to meet other people's expectations, or why do we do what we do? Do we do it because God has asked us to, and it is our joy and desire to please the Lord in all that we do? Because if we can reorient our why to that, if we can change our why to be obedience and worship rather than the result, then we can learn to be content with whatever the result might be. If I work to the glory of God, then promotion or no promotion, I've been found obedient and there's eternal reward that's going to far outstrip any promotion. If the why behind my parenting is to honor God rather than to produce a certain kind of child, then I can entrust God's sovereignty in the lives of all of my children. To be a spouse that God has called me to be, to be the pastor that God has called me to be, the friend that God has called me to be, to pursue it for the right reasons then frees me up to experience joy in his sovereign grace, whatever the result is. And finally, what's your answer? That question that has lingered for 3,000 years at the end of Jonah stands today. What is your answer? What will you do with the grace of God? Make no mistake, Jonah's theology was better than many of ours here. Jonah knew all about God. Here's the question. Has your theology ever moved from your head to your heart? Jonah knew all about God, but Jonah knew nothing of the heart of God poured out on sinners. So what will you do? Before we break down chairs, before we eat, before you take another step out of these seats, before we sing our last song, certainly before we celebrate communion together, what will you do with the grace of God? Do you, sitting here, know all about God, but do you actually know this God that you know all about? Have you experienced the tender mercy of His salvation offered for nothing but repentance and faith? Or for those of us that have responded, is there someone that you're withholding that same grace from? Because how could they deserve it after what they've done to you? The grace of God in Jonah is a beautiful thing, but it is a painful thing as it highlights how short I fall. Especially someone who loves theology. But brothers and sisters, we have to ask that question. Does what I know about God here ever touch my heart so that it might actually transform my life? Let's pray. Lord, what a remarkable book you've left for us in Jonah. A book that just filled with your sovereign grace poured out on those who do not deserve it. From Jonah to the sailors to the people of Nineveh, back to Jonah again, Lord, and on to us. We are a people who do not deserve it your grace and yet here we sit in your creation that cries out about who you are the heavens themselves declaring the glory of god day after day pouring forth speech night after night revealing knowledge and more than that your grace that has given us your word that tells us the truth about you about us about your world and even about your plan for the nations lord you've given us a savior in jesus christ spirit to sanctify us, to convict us, to encourage us. You've given us your church to walk alongside of us, to care for us, to encourage us, to confront us in our sin. God, you are so gracious. May we be a people who are graceful people. Lord, how I need your help to do that. We are desperate for your help, unable to obey on our own. So like Nineveh, we cry out to you. Oh God, be merciful to us. And Lord, with joyful anticipation, we know that it's a prayer that you answer. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock, our redeemer, and our great and merciful savior. Amen.